Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a growing alarm over whether Putin will create a false flag incident at Ukraine's largest nuclear plant in Europe, which would be blamed on the Ukrainians when it looks like his real intention is to steal 20% of Ukraine's electricity and divert it to Crimea. Joining us is Jeffrey Lewis, a professor of international studies at the Middlebury Institute. He's a regular columnist for foreign policy and has published articles in Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post and The New York Times. He's the founder of armscontrolwonk.com, the leading blog and podcast on disarmament, arms control and nuclear non-proliferation. And we will discuss whether interventions by the presidents of France and Turkey, along with the heads of the UN and the IAEA, will sway Putin, who is using energy supplies as a weapon and is now poised to leave Ukrainians out in the cold in the winter ahead. Then we'll look into the assassination attempt on the Russian nationalist Alexander Dugin, who is often referred to as Putin's brain. A car bomb meant for him instead killed his daughter, and we'll assess what kind of backlash might result from the martyrdom of a prominent Russian nationalist, since already Russian media is blaming the bombing on Ukraine. Joining us is Christina Floria, a professor of history at Cornell University, who teaches courses on East European and Soviet history, World War II and interwar Europe. Her work examines the relationship between nationalism and empire, the importance of imperial legacies in modern European history, and the centrality of imperial competition in East European politics and societies. And she's the author of Crossroads of Empire, Revolutions and Encounters at the Frontiers of Europe. Then finally, we'll investigate the story shaking up the political establishment in Mexico with Friday's arrest of the former Attorney General, who was in charge of the investigation into the disappearance of 43 students in 2014. Joining us is John Gibbler, the author of I Couldn't Even Imagine That They Would Kill Us, an oral history of the attacks against the students at Ayotzinapa. Mexico Unconquered, Chronicles of Power and Revolt, and To Die in Mexico, Dispatches from Inside the Drug War. His work on the 43 missing students from the Ayotzinapa Rural Teachers College has been published in California Sunday Magazine, featured on All Things Considered, and praised by The New Yorker. And his latest book is Torn from the World, A Story of Forced Disappearance in Mexico. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Jeffrey Lewis, who's a professor of international studies at the Middlebury Institute. He's a regular columnist for foreign policy and has published articles in Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post and The New York Times. And he's the founder of armscontrolwonk.com, a leading blog and podcast on disarmament, arms control and non-proliferation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeffrey Lewis. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeffrey. And apparently the situation around around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine, which is being run by Ukrainians, but it's being controlled and occupied by Russian forces. And there's been friction all along since it was first captured several months ago. But now it's uh, France's President Macron has called up Putin and asked him to allow international inspectors into the plant there's a concern that there could be, in fact, the chief of Russia's radiation, chemical and biological defense forces, Lieutenant General Igor Kirillov, claimed a couple of days ago that Ukrainian forces are preparing for a provocation at the nuclear plant. And that's quite often the case with the Russians, the pot that's called the kettle black. They're blaming the Ukrainians for a false flag when, in fact, they're planning on one themselves. So it's a very tense situation. The head of the United Nations has also been uh, nearby in uh, Odessa 
meeting with Ukrainian officials. So what's your sense of whether this thing could get out of control? Well, I, I think it really could get out of control, and there are a number of ways that that could happen. You know, at, a, at the simplest level, a nuclear reactor isn't something that one can neglect. Uh, it needs its staff. It needs power. Um, one needs to be able to get logistical support in and out. And so uh, anytime you see a nuclear power plant that's in a conflict zone and, and those conditions are not met, uh, one runs some risk of an accident. Uh, and that, of course, is now complicated by the fact that there's fairly credible evidence, including video evidence, that the Russians are stationing forces in the plant, um, which raises the prospect uh, of fighting, migrating from the battlefield onto the grounds of the plant itself. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a very worrisome situation. And um, that is driven in large part, I think, because of the recklessness uh, of the Russians when it comes to how they're behaving around this plant. And the plant is the largest in Europe. It has six reactors, two of which are operating. And the concern, apparently, that uh, Macron expressed to Putin is that they fear that the Russians are planning on shutting down the plant, the reactors, and then shifting the grid to supply electricity to Crimea and not to, what, something like 20% of Ukraine. So it looks as if Putin is weaponizing electrical energy. Yeah, it's simply a, a theft uh, of electricity uh, is, I think, what we're all worried about. Uh, you know, it's really important to keep in mind that there are, are rules uh, when it comes to war. There is a law of armed conflict. There are humanitarian conventions. And so uh, civilians are not supposed to be targeted. And the combatants have to take precaution uh, to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so anytime you see um, uh, a party weaponizing uh, civilian infrastructure, in this case, energy production, which is central to all of our lives, um, you know, what you really see is, is a country that's acting with disregard for the law of armed conflict and, and, and international humanitarian law. Well, Putin, through Gazprom, has shut down the supply of gas to Europe now for three days, allegedly for maintenance. So it would seem to me that that's another sort of case of weaponizing energy and reminding the Europeans that he's got leverage over them. The U.S. seems to be fairly consistent in supporting Ukraine, particularly militarily, but there's a possibility that the Europeans could get a little wobbly and Putin might well be exploiting that. So what's your sense of the broader politics, Jeffrey? Well, I think that is precisely what Putin is doing, is that there is an effort to try to uh, use energy as leverage, and and that goes all the way from using energy to punish Ukrainian civilians because of the resistance to the Russian invasion, all the way up to punishing individual uh, human beings just living in Europe by trying to create uh, you know, political crisis uh, by shutting down energy supplies. And so, you know, at, I suppose at one level, it's not surprising countries use the leverage that's available to them. Um, but there is a sort of there's an ugly quality to this um, that I think really gets to the heart of of even after this conflict, even even if some kind of, of peace agreement can be reached. Um, you know, I just think the, the reliability of Russia as a, as a supplier of energy and just the trustworthiness of Russia as a neighbor um, is, is in tatters. And again, I'm speaking with Jeffrey Lewis, who's a professor of international studies at the Middlebury Institute. He's a regular columnist for foreign policy and has published articles in Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post and The New York Times. And he's the founder of armscontrolwonk.com, the leading blog and podcast on disarmament arms control, and nuclear nonproliferation. Well, I think the broader point, though, with Putin is that if Putin wins in Ukraine, or if he's not stopped and has to sort of make some kind of deal, wouldn't he be emboldened to really double down on his attacks, soft power attacks on the West, on particularly the United States, like, for example, the November elections? I mean, he's done it before, but since he sees himself at war, particularly with the United States and NATO, isn't he likely to become more aggressive? He does seem like the sort of individual who goes from one event to the other 
um, just increasing the stakes. And so, yes, my sense is that uh, if he's able to dismember Ukraine and uh, install a puppet government, um, that the lesson he'll draw from that is that this was a good decision. And I think he'll look at other opportunities to do the same thing. So uh, it's an unfortunate situation because obviously uh, I think we'd all like to imagine a world in which Russia was a, was a good neighbor to have and, and in which energy supplies flowed freely. Um, but that just doesn't seem to be Mr. Putin's outlook. And so, uh, you know, I don't think much good can come um, ultimately of, of letting him have his way in Ukraine. So back to the possibility of, I don't know whether there could be a meltdown. I mean, there was, of course, the meltdown was in Chernobyl, which is in Ukraine back in the 1980s. And at Chernobyl, of course, there was no containment vessel around like a huge concrete dome to contain the radiation so it was an absolute catastrophe in that regard these reactors at Zaporizhia two of which are operating do have containment domes so to that extent there's a little more safety but there are two aspects there are all the, the cooling ponds where the spent fuel reactor rods are cooling, and if anything happens to them or they lose water, then you'd have steam explosions with, with plutonium being spread all over the place. And if, in turning off the reactor, the Russians, who are proven to be quite reckless, don't manage to get the backup generators going, because apparently they're running around the place looking for diesel fuel in the middle of a war, that's not a good sign. And that's what happened at Fukushima was, you know, the, the nuclear plant itself provides the energy to pump the coolant in to cool the core. So if you lose the, the electrical supply from the electrical generator itself from the nuclear power plant, then you have to turn to the backup diesel generators. And at Fukushima, the, the tsunami swamped the diesel generators and put them out of action. And that's why you had a partial meltdown in Fukushima. So could something like that happen at Zaporizhia? Because already there have been reports, for example, that the Russians have mined the intakes of the water from the Dnieper River that goes to cool the, the reactor cores. Yeah, I, I would say that the two scenarios you outlined are the ones I worry about. First is that you have some kind of loss of power or otherwise just control of the reactor and you know, the reaction at Chernobyl was really a, a very unusual kind of event, and you wouldn't see an accident like that. But the comparison is the one that you raised, which is you might see a Fukushima-like accident where um, if there was no power after an extended period of time and the cooling systems failed, or if the cooling systems were damaged in fighting, um, that that's a situation where you might, because you have a loss of cooling, experience a reactor meltdown. And that wouldn't be the kind of explosion and fire we saw at Chernobyl. Um, but that would still be a very serious environmental problem. The second situation um, is one that is less well-known, uh, but I'm, I'm impressed that you know. Uh, that's the spent fuel itself has to be kept cool. Uh, and so the fuel, when it's taken out of the reactor, is put in these large ponds. Um, and there has to be enough water, and that water has to be kept cool. Uh, and if you don't do that, over time, eventually that water boils off. Uh, and then the spent fuel would catch fire. Uh, and that could be an extremely uh, serious environmental problem because you'd basically have these radioactive spent fuel elements um, just burning. And that actually would be much more uh, like Chernobyl in, in some ways. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the reality is neither of those things is likely to happen. Um, but at the same time, the reason they're not likely to happen is that there are basic precautions we can take. Uh, and so... Uh, to the extent that the Russians are not allowing personnel to rotate, that they're not allowing steady, reliable power, that increases the risk of one of those two things happening. So what's the answer here? I mean, you're really at the mercy of, of Putin, right? I mean, he's, he's proven to be a gangster and a killer. <laughs> so I don't know what you can do. I mean, but it seems like the one straw that we have in terms of communicating with him is via Macron, the French president. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we have to hope that he's going to recognize that he has a vested interest in there not being a nuclear accident at the site. And I do think that the Russians are, to some extent, manipulating that 
fear and that risk. I mean, that's why they're putting uh, military forces there and, and sort of daring the Ukrainians to to shell the facility. Um, and so there is this reckless, irresponsible behavior. And I think what we all are basically forced to do is trust that he knows where that line is. Um, and whether he does or not, I guess we'll find out. But what seems likely is that the Russians are going to force the Ukrainian employees at the at the plant. And apparently it's a lot of friction between the Russians and the Ukrainians. And it's the Ukrainians that run the plant and the Russians are they're occupiers, they're soldiers. Initially, when they first invaded the plant, it was a, a bunch of Chechens from Kadyrov's group of thugs that shot the place up. So it's been pretty, obviously, very tense ever since the Russians occupied the, the, the area. But if they take it off the grid and then reconfigure the grid so that the electricity that would normally go to supply Ukraine then is switched to supply Crimea, that means the Ukrainian people are going to be absolutely freezing during the winter. And that seems like what Putin's strategy is. I think you're exactly right. And I suspect that a lot of the Russian behavior we're seeing around the reactor, including the claims of provocations, is probably uh, part of what's fundamentally going to be a propaganda campaign for them to turn around and then steal this electricity. Um, it's deplorable. It's a crime. Um, but then again, that's the behavior we have seen, I think, consistently from the Russians throughout this conflict. And is there anything, because one of the British members of parliament is calling for NATO to invoke Article 5 if this happens. What would be the justification for that? Well, I haven't seen that particular proposal. And, uh, you know, to be honest, this behavior, while it's reprehensible, is one of a series of reprehensible Russian behaviors. And so I'm not sure that this would justify an Article 5 invocation any more than any of the other terrible things that the Russians have done. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we're still stuck with this problem of trying to find a way to support the Ukrainians in repelling this invasion while at the same time managing the risk of escalation. So I, I, I wouldn't imagine um, that as awful as the decision to steal the electricity would be, um, that it would that it would elicit much more than, uh, you know, condemnation uh, and continued Western assistance to Ukraine. Well, Ukraine's not a member of NATO, so I'm not sure what the British MPs talking about in terms of invoking uh, Article 5 it would have to be a, a NATO state that was attacked, right? Well, my, my feeling is when we're talking about politicians, we should probably just always assume that they don't really know what they're talking about. Uh, you know, I, I don't mean to be too flip about it, but I, you know, I think sometimes when people talk about invoking Article 5, that's just their way of saying they think something is really, really bad and, and something ought to be done. Something ought to be done, but perhaps not that thing. So just in the last minute then, uh, Jeffrey Lewis, I know the head of the IAEA nuclear safety, Grossi, recently just absolutely, was, his hair was on fire. The head of the UN, Gutierrez, is in Odessa as we speak, I believe, still there. Uh, and he met with Erdogan in Turkey in order to try and come up with some deal. And, and Zelensky, too. There was a report back in, I think, in May that suggested that if there were a meltdown at Zaporizhia, the, the radioactive plume would drift into Turkey. So Turkey may well have a stake in this. So given the alarms from uh, Rafael Grossi of the IAEA and the head of the United Nations, that suggests that there's a lot of world attention on this. So at the end of the day, is it possible there's a diplomatic solution here? Can the maybe through Turkey, Turkey's intervention. What, what, I'm, I'm grasping at straws here, but I'm hoping that somebody can show some common sense here and stop this recklessness. I think we're all hoping for a little bit of common sense. Um, you know, I think the most hopeful thing I can say is it's in no one's interest for there to be a nuclear accident. And so one hopes that that broader recognition of a shared interest that includes not just Ukraine, not just Russia, but pretty much every country uh, that is in the general vicinity uh, of these reactors. But that broader sense of shared interest will eventually prevail upon Putin to make a good decision. Um, you know, the disappointing thing is that what we've seen in this conflict up to now has not been good decision making. 
and so I think that's why, uh, even though the interest is obvious, uh, that we all remain a, a little bit worried about how the Russians are handling the situation. Well, Jeffrey Lewis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I mean, speaking with Jeffrey Lewis, who's a professor of international studies at the Middlebury Institute, and he's a regular columnist for foreign policy and, and has published articles in Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, and is the founder of armscontrolwonk.com, the leading blog and podcast on disarmament, arms control, and nuclear nonproliferation. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the assassination attempt on the Russian nationalist Alexander Dugin, who was often referred to as Putin's brain. Officer. I wanted to walk through the empty streets and feel something constant under my feet, but all the news reports recommended that I stay indoors because the air outside will make ourselves divided at alarming rate until our shells simply cannot hold all our insides in, and that's when. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christina Floria, who's a professor of history at Cornell University, who teaches courses on East European and Soviet history, World War II and interwar Europe. Her work examines the relationship between nationalism and empire, the importance of imperial legacies in modern European history, and the centrality of imperial competition to Eastern European politics and societies. And she's the author of Crossroads of Empire, Revolutions and Encounters at the Frontiers of Europe. And she has an article at Foreign Affairs, Putin's Perilous Imperial Dream. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christina Floria. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Christina. And we spoke a while back when you had an, another article at CNN, Putin Knows That Controlling History is Key to Total Power. So already in response to the assassination attempt on the Russian nationalist Alexander Dugin, who's often referred to as Putin's brain, this car bomb meant for him instead killed his daughter. And there's obviously a huge uh, outcry in Russian media they're already blaming the bombing on on Kiev, on Ukraine, and Russian nationalists and television commentators are already calling for Putin to go after the decision centers in Ukraine. In other words, start you know bombing Zelensky. So it's a pretty dangerous situation. So let's begin with Dugin himself. Is he Putin's brain? I I'd understand that his influence had waned somewhat recently. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, there are disagreements about his exact relationship with Putin. But one thing that is important to understand is that uh, Putin's actions, at least most recently, seem to echo or at least kind of uh, reinforce some of the ideas that Dugin has been putting out there for a while. So while we don't know for sure what the relationship is, there's definitely an affinity of ideas, namely this notion that um, the solution basically to Russia's post-imperial problem is to revive a great Eurasian Union. I think this is where the influence is. Um, now, the idea itself obviously doesn't really start with Dukin. He's kind of a, a representative of a much older idea that has been out there since at least the beginning of the 20th century. And he's just putting a new spin on it, essentially, for this particular, these particular circumstances in which Russia found itself after the 1990s, basically after losing its Soviet empire and having to essentially reinvent a role for itself and uh, meaning in the world. Well, it is obvious that Putin uh, is an admirer of Peter the Great, right? <laughs> Didn't he refer to himself oh. in in that light? Hello. Yeah, I said, uh, I said uh, Putin's an admirer of Putin's an admirer of uh, Peter the, Peter the Great. I think recently he referred to himself as uh, as what the reincarnation of Peter the Great. Yes, but you, yeah, this is very funny. So I know from um, there was a biography of Putin a while ago, 
that mentioned, among other things, that Putin, while working for the mayor of St. Petersburg at the beginnings of his career, liked to keep a portrait of Peter the Great behind him, uh, like hanging in the office as inspiration. But what's really tricky about this, on the one hand, I mean, there are certain things that he uh, definitely inspire him about Peter the Great, but others that he's doing exactly uh, opposite to what Peter the Great had in mind. Now, Peter the Great's main role, or rather his main contribution to Russian history, is to have tried to tie Russia to Europe, to modernize it. He tried to solve the problem of Russia's geopolitical situation, essentially this you could say awkward position, right, at the very margins of Europe, by essentially reforming it, adopting at least the appearances, right, if not uh, exactly the essence of Western or European culture, which took various forms from forcing Russian peasants to cut their beards off, for example, to look more European, to basically building a modern European-looking city out of a swamp that nobody would have thought right, would have been a project that nobody thought was in fact possible. And so, in fact, Peter the Great, if you think about it right against this uh, larger backdrop of Russian history, his actions, or rather his, his reign, represented uh, an attempt to integrate Russia or to bring Russia closer to Europe, to westernize it, to modernize it, to make it one of the large European powers, which he in fact succeeded. He basically defeated Sweden, which was uh, the dominant power in the region at the time, and then began expanding and modernizing and giving Russia a whole new reputation. So as you can see, I mean, what, what Putin might have in common with this or what he might find inspiring about it is precisely right, this idea about putting Russia on the map. But where he's different is that he's rejecting the West. And this is kind of, um, it, it's basically emblematic of another strain within Russian history and ideas about where Russia should be and where Russia belongs. And this is uh, known as, well, the origins are in the 19th century with this other current uh, called Slavophilism. So the, uh, some representatives of the Slavophile thought were basically intellectuals who thought that the consequences or the cost of modernization and Europeanization for Russia are way too high. And that actually they are, you know, they go against the very essence of what Russia is about. And so the way for Russia to excel or to uh, kind of assert a place for itself in the world is not to copy the West, but to offer an alternative to it. And these people thought that Russia should be oriented eastwards rather than westwards. And this is where the origins of this Eurasianism, which would eventually, you know, take the form of Dugin's ideas, actually are. Well, clearly, uh, the situation has uh, gotten worse, if it's possible to have this terrible war between Russia and Ukraine get worse. Uh, and it will get worse because the, the, the Russian media is calling for blood uh, and calling for, for attacks on, on uh, the, the um, leadership in Kiev uh, going after Zelensky. Government workers in Kiev have been told uh, to work from home and, and avoid government buildings, which they expect to be targeted by Russian missiles. And uh, Dugan, of course, um, in many ways has been described as a Russian fascist. Uh, he's also mm -hmm. a, a conspiracy theorist. Um, so uh, that's, I mean, he's a, he was a pretty unsavory character, but there are a lot of powerful people in the, the Russian establishment, uh, including the possible heir to Putin, um, Nikolai Petrushev. Uh, he's also an ultra-nationalist. So is it uh, likely that uh, even if Putin goes away, uh, which obviously a lot of people would like to see happen, that he'd be replaced by somebody like Dugin? Hmm. I mean, it's hard to tell. You know, here the opinions, again, kind of diverge. At the beginnings of the war, I know there were a number of studies, some actually done by one of my colleagues here, together with uh, some uh, Russian professors of sociology, I think, and politics, that show that most of the Russian public was not, you know, at best ambivalent about the idea of going into a war with Ukraine and actually didn't really support it very much. But as often happens, and happened in the past in Russia repeatedly, 
once the war got started and then uh, bodies start returning home in coffins, uh, the public mood changes. And I think people get radicalized. And so here, I mean, it's really hard to tell. It's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think, because a lot of the intelligentsia, a lot of the younger people, um, intellectuals who had ties with the West and who were critical of the regime have been leaving Russia. So in a way, it's it's like a self-reinforcing uh, kind of situation in which those who support this kind of uh, politics, this kind of ultranationalism, you know, are left on the stage because everybody else leaves. Um, so, I mean, as a historian, <laughs> one thing that I'm very bad at is predicting the future, so I can't quite tell. Um, but what's very likely is that, you know, this incident, like, it, you know, it happened uh, very often in the past that incidents like this, you know, they, they happen at the right moment to radicalize people, to push, uh, you know, certain kinds of politics away from within the realm of possibility. One thing sure. that uh, it... Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say that uh, World War One started because of the assassination of the Archduke. Yes, exactly. And But there, you know, the difference is funny that you mentioned, I was thinking about a different parallel with the Bolsheviks, but let's talk about the uh, Franz Ferdinand assassination. There, the Austrian government really took its time before actually going ahead with declaration of war and giving an ultimatum and so on. Here, we see an immediate reaction. Uh, everybody's indignant, right? There are all these threats. Uh, and what's also really interesting about it to me is the kind of conspiratorial thinking behind all this. This is a feature of authoritarian regimes uh, that everybody who knows anything about them will recognize immediately, in which right, we believe that everything is a conspiracy, and so everything becomes a conspiracy. You create conspiracies yourself in order to give the image or to give the the message, right, that there's this plot going on underground, which offers perfect opportunities to steer the war out of this uh, state of uh, stagnation, let's say, or to, to influence public opinion one way or another, I think. Well, it is a uh, obviously a very tense situation now as a result of this assassination attempt uh, mm -hmm. that killed uh, Dugan's daughter, and she herself was a fairly well-known nationalist figure, and they were mm -hmm. attending a kind of nationalist rally just outside of uh, Moscow, uh, a cultural festival called Tradition. And of course, that mm -hmm. is what Putin's all about in the and his alliance with the uh, Russian Orthodox Church is, you know, traditional family values like the Christian right mm -hmm. in this country talk about. And, there, and there's a lot of similarities. And they're anti-gay and, and Putin even has his own Hitler youth group called Nashi, encouraging yeah. Russians to have more children. I think I think there's a bonus now if you have children. So it's all rather <laughs> totalitarian in its in its outlooks and stuff. So assuming that this is not an attack by the Ukrainians, and they obviously would not risk something as stupid now that the Russian media are saying go after decision-making centers, go after decision-making centers. That's the rallying cry. It's more likely that this was a result of an internal struggle within the Russian elite and within the Siloviki, the mm -hmm. intelligence services, between the more pragmatic, you know, Putin advisors or people around Putin or the, and the ultra-nationalists. So what do you think is the likelihood of anybody other than an ultra-nationalist rising to power? Oh, it's really hard to tell. You know, I, there, were, there were moments before in this war or there are turning points where people thought this would be the time for Putin to be eliminated. But then the question is, right, who would he be replaced by? And it, are there enough structures and are there enough institutional structures to support a different kind of regime or a different kind of leader at this point. And I'm not so sure about that. Right? This is always a question that we're confronted with when we talk about these authoritarian, right, totalitarian regimes. You remove this one figure from the picture, what is the alternative, right? What would you get? 
you remove Lenin from the Bolshevik Revolution. Well, what you will see there is, yeah, things might not have proceeded exactly as they did, but, you know, the circumstances or the general mood at the time were of such a nature that I would, it would be very unlikely for a completely democratic parliament, parliamentary regime to develop out of that. And so I think this is a similar situation in a way where there's a lot of disenchantment, I think, with what uh, the period after 1990 represented for Russia and specifically with its diminished role in the world. And given also that, right, this is not exactly a democratic regime, I don't know to what extent people's opinion at this point could actually make a difference. Right. Putin doesn't seem so concerned about whether people agree or disagree with him. Uh, neither do the other leaders. Just based on my own one thing that you were talking about that I think is very interesting. And based on my own observations from when I was in Russia, I was, I was really impressed with the strength of the Orthodox Church, actually, and the kind of revival that it had after 1990 and the grip that these Orthodox ideas actually hold on the population, which... Uh, for me, at least, was really unexpected given the decades of uh, life under uh, an atheistic regime. And it's really interesting how Putin has just jumped on this bandwagon and essentially uh, has created this combination, really, of ideas of, you know, the cult of the monarchy that was assassinated or that was, you know, abdicated and then assassinated by the Bolsheviks combined with a revival of the Orthodox Church combined with, uh, you know, taking on again the ambition of putting Russia on the map, combined with this idea of Russia creating a Eurasian sphere. And the whole, it, it's an interesting kind of mixed bag of ideas from the past that are recombined to form this new ideology that I think the way that uh, Putin thinks it would work or the way he imagines it is that Russia would be spearheading this kind of uh, anti-Western, anti-Eurocentric uh, movement in the world. And so well, I think that idea has been really powerful really globally, which is why I, I don't really see a smooth transition really away from it. Well, Christina Floria, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It was a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Christina Floria, who's a professor of history at Cornell University, who teaches courses on Eastern European and Soviet history, World War II and interwar Europe. Her work examines the relationship between nationalism and empire, the importance of imperial legacies in modern European history, and the centrality of imperial competition to Eastern European politics and societies. And she's the author of Crossroads of Empire, Revolutions and Encounters at the Frontiers of Europe. And she has an article at Foreign Affairs, Putin's perilous imperial dream. We're going to take a brief station break and back investigating the story shaking up the political establishment in Mexico with Friday's arrest of the former Attorney General who was in charge of the investigation into the disappearance of 43 students in 2014. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, John Gibbler, the author of I Couldn't Even Imagine That They Would Kill Us, an oral history of the attacks against the students of Ayotzinapa, Mexico Unconquered, Chronicles of Power and Revolt, and To Die in Mexico, Dispatches from Inside the Drug War, his work on the 43 missing students from the Ayotzinapa Rural Teachers College has been published in California Sunday Magazine, featured on All Things Considered and Praised by The New Yorker. And his latest book is Torn from the World, A Story of Forced Disappearance in Mexico. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Gibbler. Thanks so much, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And we've stayed in touch over the years over this story, uh, which has always been kind of hideous, that 
43 students disappear and their families never hear from them again and their bodies are never recovered and what is recovered is not considered particularly reliable or credible. And this all happened uh, on the 26th of September in 2014 and it's been an open wound ever since then. And it turns out that Mexico's former attorney general who was in charge of the investigation was arrested on Friday and charged with a cover-up. So again, you get back to the deeper problems of, uh, of how deep organized crime has penetrated politics, particularly uh, in the pre-party. Uh, Peña Nieto, whose attorney general, just got arrested. Uh, indeed. I think here it's really important to just kind of um, recall that when the students were attacked and disappeared in, as you mentioned, September of 2014, uh, the PRI had just come back in power after two six-year terms of being uh, out of power, and that for the, you know, the first time in, in modern Mexican history, the PRI had ruled for 71 years up to the year 2000. Um, and the government's initial response was to first minimize uh, what had happened, the impact of what had happened, to uh, deny that the students were actually disappeared, to say they must be lost, they, they must be, you know, hiding out somewhere, um, to then, as soon as it became very clear that the students had been, you know, removed from the streets by uniformed police officers and then not seen again, i.e. forcibly disappeared by members of the state, um, then they also tried to lie and depoliticize and minimize the nature of the events in the streets that night of the attacks to say that the students had gone to protest this uh, mayor's wife's political event in Iguala and that the mayor and his wife are both drug gang people uh, to say that the students had been infiltrated by a rival drug gang to the one in power in Iguala, all kinds of things, again, just to um, lie about what had happened, depoliticize it, make it seem like, you know, less important. It's about drugs. It's not about the state, right? Um, and then over the, the following months, the federal attorney general's office, led by Jesus Murillo Karam, who was just arrested on Friday, uh, and, and I should recall here as well that it's not only the federal attorney general's office that was involved in putting this all together, but as we'll maybe talk about a bit, it was the secretary of defense, it was the secretary of the Navy, it was uh, the secretary of the interior, it was the president's office. Um, but but the, the institution that really uh, gave face in the individual within that institution was the federal attorney general's office and Jesus Murillo Karam. Um, and they, you know, put forth this, we now know pure fiction, this lie that the students had all been uh, gathered together, taken uh, all 43 to a trash dump about, you know, 45 minutes, an hour away from Iguala. And during the course of that night, they had all been murdered and then burned and even incinerated at the trash dump. Now, immediately that seemed ridiculous or it seemed uh, highly unlikely because it rained all night. So, I mean, just literally the first uh, kind of response to that description was how is that possible that you could not just burn, but fully incinerate 43 human bodies in an open air trash dump in the middle of a rainstorm, right? It just didn't make sense. And initially the attorney general said, no, it didn't rain that night until you know, investigators and reporters were able to find meteorological reports, not only eyewitness testimony, i.e. the people who were in the rain getting wet, but, you know, scientific, so to speak, documentation to say, no, in fact, it did rain. Um, but the federal attorney general and the entire force of the federal government just insisted on this story that the police captured the students, they turned them over to this drug gang and the drug gang, uh, you know, uh, cannibals, because they have them in their, you know, we now know produced under torture, false confessions, saying that they even tried some of the flesh of the burning students. I mean, just imagine the horror of the families listening to that, listening to not just anybody say it, it's not some rumor mill, but it's the official voice of the state saying that this happened. 
and knowing that it doesn't make sense and starting to investigate the parents, the first thing they did was go out to the trash dump, just like reporters and other uh, independent investigators, and to like check out the area and try and make sense of the story that was being told. But of course, it didn't make sense. And now, eight years later, through uh, a number of independent investigations initially, um, but also the current government's investigation, there is exhaustive documentation to show that, in fact, that mass incineration of the trash dump never took place. It now seems that the students themselves never set foot in that trash dump, alive or dead, um, and in fact, that they were never reunified. The students were, were detained by the police and abducted by the police at several different points in the city that night, um, which is, again, something that I initially, because I, the first thing I did was work with the survivors, the students who were in the streets that night and survived. And when they described the, the chaos and the complexity and the, uh, the different scenes of attack to which they were subjected, um, that's why I never thought it made sense that they would have all been brought back together in a group, unless, of course, they'd all been taken to the jail, right? That would have made sense. But there were not uh, reports or evidence to suggest that all of the students, only a smaller group of them, had in fact been taken to jail and then later removed from the jail. Um, but all this to say that uh, indeed, I think one of the, the most intense, tragic, painful parts of this atrocity is the fact that these families have spent almost eight years now not only in a state of unknowing, not knowing where their kids are, not knowing really what happened to them, but the psychosis, the just torture of having their state, their government, their representatives, uh, their paid officials lie to them and not only lie to them, but tell them horrifying, ghastly uh, lies that, you know, the, the stuff of nightmares. Um, and so now this new government has moved judicially against uh, the, the prior administration and their uh, cover-up, which I like to refer to more as the administrative stage of the forced disappearance itself to try and give a sense of the impact of that atrocity, that it's not just hiding something or lying, but, uh, but the continuation of the horror of the forced disappearance for all those families um, but, but there's, there's some worrisome aspects, I think, to the current government's initial actions. You know, they gave a, a press conference last Thursday, uh, initially announcing the presidentially established Truth Commission's, uh, findings that they published a 103 page report, but of that, of those 103 pages, 38 pages have been fully redacted. So it's almost half the report that is, uh, not accessible public view. Um, and then also in that press conference, the subsecretary for human rights, Alejandro Encinas, in answering a journalist's question about the military involvement that night, which has always been, I think, one of the key uh, things, key aspects to really documenting the truth, the full truth of what happened. Um, Encinas said, uh, there's no evidence to suggest that the military or the federal police participated as institutions, even though individuals did participate. And that, for me, throws up a huge red flag that we're going to once again get a, a government that's going to try and tailor facts uh, and investigation documents to fit a political need. Because now this current government's political uh, benefit very, may very well be to charge former elected officials from an opposition party with mass crimes, but not to touch the army. The current government has been incredibly supportive of the army, given them more control over public security tasks domestically, given them direct uh, administrative control over major infrastructure projects. It's hard to believe that the supposed or self-proclaimed anti-neoliberal left-wing president would be even closer to the army and further militarizing the country than his rather bellicose, uh, you know, more conservative predecessors. Sorry if that was a bit long-winded. There's a lot to get in. No, but when we spoke some time back, uh, John Gibbler, about the disappearance of these 43 students, there were some suspicions about the local Marines being involved. And apparently at the Marine base, there is a, a big incinerator. Earlier this year, President Lopez Obrador 
revealed that Navy members were being investigated for allegedly tampering with evidence, and that includes these remains found at the garbage dump, which might well have been planted. Is it because the Marines and the Navy and the Army are taking a bigger role in the war on drugs? And, of course, we all recall that uh, Lopez Obrador, when he was elected in 2018, promised to pacify the drug war with his policy of hugs, not bullets. And just in the last couple of weeks, there have been mayhem across Mexico, in Guadalajara and Guanajuato, cartels torched buses and cars and took over convenience stores. And in Juarez, there were shootouts in the street. In Tijuana, uh, they also took over areas and put up barricades, drug cartels. So is this what's going on here, that AMLO is trying to justify his failed new version of the war on drugs? Well, first, I think I think he's distanced himself from the language of the war on drugs, as you very, uh, I think, um, justly point out. You know, he was much critiqued for his uh, statement during a presidential debate that he was going to pursue abrazos, no balazos, right? So hugs, not bullets, as you said. Um, but he's distanced himself from the logic and the language of the war on drugs. But he's also, I think, just kind of pretended like it's not happening. It hasn't been a priority. It hasn't been a concern. And the violence associated with the transnational drug industry itself, which I think kind of the way I understand it includes the the drug war apparatus, um, has expanded and and has increased during his presidency. As you mentioned, you know, all of the the recent uh, acts of extreme violence in the country, as well as the continued violence against reporters. Uh, uh, 14 Mexican journalists have been murdered so far just this year. And and Lopez Obrador almost never talks about it in his daily press conferences. Um, he wants to kind of pretend like it's not happening and has been coming under uh, fierce critique uh, for that. And there is um, suspicion that he's trying to use some kind of movement on the Ayotzinapa investigation uh, to distract from what's happening across the country um, with violence uh, and to kind of stake his legitimacy on uh, actually investigating a, a state crime. You know, that's, they're emphasizing that on the August 18 uh, press conference where they said, you know, no state, uh, the Mexican state has never officially, you know, investigated uh, sanctioned, prosecuted uh, a crime of the state. So they're kind of setting themselves apart, which is their whole logic and language of the fourth transformation of the nation, right? The the four T is uh, people supportive of the government describe Lopez Obrador's administrations. It's not just in the old presidency, it's the fourth transfer, transformation of the nation. Um, and I think most people at least many, many people in Mexico feel that that transformation is not taking place, that in fact a lot of politics and business as usual is what we're seeing as evidenced by the, the continued horror and tragedies of, of violence related to the, to the drug industry. And it does seem that Lopez Obrador's strategy is, is basically to catch the top leaders and the critics of his strategy suggest, saying that the best way to deal with the drug problem and the cartels is to close bank accounts, seize the property of the drug lords, confiscate their buildings, and particularly go after their weapons, but particularly the high-caliber weapons that they get from the United States, which normally only the military use. So that's the critique here. But just in, in the last couple of minutes, John Gibbler, are we likely to find out what happened to these 43 students? I mentioned the incinerator at the Navy base. What What's the the latest lead now that they've arrested the former attorney general? That's a pretty amazing thing to arrest an attorney general. Of course, I'm speaking here in the United States where there's possibility that a former president is going to be arrested. But <laughs> that aside, uh, it's still big news, is it not? It's huge news. And just very quickly, I want to say that I think you're very right to point out that critique, but also just recall that that policy is very much U.S. policy, right? That's the United States design of the drug war, you know, arrest the the top level people. And that strategy has, what it's done is not only increase the violence, but it's perpetuated 
and and just yeah, it's perpetuated the, the illegal drug industry and made it increasingly more and more violent. And and Lopez Obrador is definitely following that, but it didn't start with him. And and it's something that I trace back to U.S. Uh, drug policy across Latin America. Um, and in terms of that, I, the arrest of the former attorney general is big news. It's something that I think was long coming. Uh, I, 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 I mean, I'm not a, a fan of <laughs> states and jails and things like that anyway, but but I definitely think that Jesus Murillo Karam has serious tasks, atrocities to atone for, right? I mean, and, and in the language of the state, he definitely committed heinous crimes while in office. Uh, and in terms of what we know and what we still don't know. I mean, we know there's so much documentation about the nature of the attacks against the students. We know who was participating. I think we still need to clarify the full chain of command to know who we're calling the shots, who's making the decisions over the course of the night, particularly the decision to forcibly disappear this large number of students, 43 students, and then the full chain of command of the administrative disappearance or the or the subsequent cover-up operation, which I really think goes as high up as you can go. I think it was the full security cabinet and the president of the country at the time. And I think there's ample evidence to to support that. And I hope we'll see, I hope the investigators have, have been doing a really good job and we'll see even more evidence so that that can be rigorously documented. And if so, what that I think will reveal is that the whole structure of the state chose to commit all of these atrocities to continue to disappear the, the students, to completely disregard the lives of their families and the way that those lives are being continuously shattered in order to protect the state complicity in international drug trafficking. Because it seems like that's what it comes back to, which is the possibility that the students unwittingly, without knowing it, uh, abducted uh, a passenger bus that had been refitted with secret compartments to carry some major shipment, either of heroin or potentially cash. Um, and that that detonated, that was what set off the operation against the students. I really think that when the decision is made somewhere around 1045, 11 o'clock at night to disappear this large group of students, that that, that decision was largely made because of who they were. And I think in that sense, there's a counterinsurgency dimension to that mass force disappearance. The students were members of this federal, um, federal socialist students organization. They come from a school with a long and storied history of left-wing mobilizations and left-wing protest. Um, and that they're largely working class and indigenous students from the rural sections of this uh, sectors of the state of Guerrero and surrounding areas. Well, John Gilbert, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I'll be speaking with John Gibbler, who's the author of I Couldn't Even Imagine That They Would Kill Us, An Oral History of the Attacks Against the Students at Ayotzinapa. Mexico Unconquered, Chronicles of Power and Revolt, and To Die in Mexico, Dispatches from Inside the Drug War. And his work on the 43 missing students from the Ayotzinapa Rural Teachers College has been published in California Sunday Magazine, featured on All Things Considered and praised by The New Yorker. And his latest book is Torn from the World, A Story of Forced Disappearance in Mexico. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the 
disappeared by heaven.